0: Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. I hope you're well. My friend Kevin tells a story this way. He says, When I was young, I used to go deer hunting every fall with my dad, uncles, and cousins. Honestly, looking back, we were never any good at it. But it was more about the experience and being able to spend time together. And because of that, we looked forward to it every year. As we drove to different areas through the mountains to hunt, I often rode in the back of my uncle's pickup truck with my cousins. These dirt roads contained many obstacles along the way, boulders, ruts, mud bogs, and as we approached these obstacles, I knew I had to hang on tight to whatever I could find because my uncle relied on one thing to get us through mud bogs, momentum. As we hung on for dear life to the truck, our rifles, and each other, I would often hear my dad and uncles repeat a phrase, if you stop, you're stuck. Fast forward 12 years to a small country in southern Africa called Swaziland. I was serving uh, a mission at the time. It was P-Day, and a small group of elders decided we wanted to take in some African wildlife. So we piled into a four-door little pickup truck and drove to a nearby nature preserve. Once there, we proceeded to explore the wilderness, driving uh, our own vehicle. Think of it like a safari, but you drive yourself around. After exploring for quite a while and seeing many varieties of wildlife, we approached a fork in the road. The path on the right went up a steep hill leading into the mountains. The path on the left led to the exit of the reserve. At the bottom of the mountain path, there was a sign that read, Warning, Difficult Road, 4x4 Only. Now, the little four-door truck I was driving did not have four-wheel drive, but being young... And possessing some poor decision making and a strong sense of adventure, we chose not to heed the warning and headed up the path. It proved to be a difficult path full of obstacles, but with careful tire placement and a good dose of adrenaline, we did quite well for a while. We soon rounded a corner to find yet another obstacle waiting for us, a small and seemingly unimpressive section of mud. But as I started to drive through the mud, it soon became apparent that this puddle was a lot deeper and the ground a lot softer than I anticipated. I knew I simply didn't have enough momentum to carry us through this obstacle, and the truck grinded to a halt, leaving us with tires spinning freely. In that moment, it was like I could hear my dad's voice speaking the words If you stop, you're stuck. We tried for 30 minutes to free the truck rocking it back and forth, pushing with all our strength, but we weren't budging it. It was badly stuck. So there we were, deep in the African wilderness, and it was about to get worse. Through the trees, we heard a commotion. Loud screeching sounds rang out. And as we looked toward the sound, we were horrified to see an angry troop of wild baboons rapidly approaching us. They formed a half circle about 50 feet away and began to display behavior that I can only describe as terrifying. Loud screaming and barking, throwing stones, proudly displaying their insanely large white fangs. They were clearly not amused that we were in their territory. And the only thing larger than those fangs were our eyes as we took it all in. Realizing the trouble we were in, And with all four of us silently praying, we acted quick and decided to give the truck one final push. We pushed with all our strength, and as it turns out, the fear of being dismembered by a troop of angry baboons is pretty good motivation. Combine that with what was surely divine intervention, and to our great surprise and relief, the truck lunged forward and broke free of the mud pit. Forward momentum was restored, and we got ourselves back to safety limbs intact. If you stop, you're stuck. That's why in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we rely on modern revelation. And today we're going to take a look at two pieces of modern revelation, official declaration number one and official declaration number two. Now, official declaration number one is the end of um, the practice of plural marriage. So let's jump in and talk a little bit about the history of plural marriage. As you remember from Doctrine and Covenants section 132, Joseph Smith begins practicing plural marriage back in the 1830s. By the spring of 1842, he begins to teach some members of the Quorum of the Twelve about the practice and commands them to live the principle. By the time he dies, there are 115 men and women who have entered into plural marriages, and about 200 to 300 more had been officially taught the practice. Following this, the saints moved to Utah, or what will become Utah, and in 1852, church leaders publicly announced the practice of plural marriage in the Utah Territory. About five years later, by 1857, the practice of plural marriage is as widespread as it will get. In 1857, there are about 50% of those living in the Utah Territory live in a polygamous family as a husband, wife, or child, most of them being children. But... As um, you can imagine, as the Latter-day Saints announce the practice of plural marriage, there is a collective gasp (gasps) in the United States. They're like, well, we knew you were a bunch of weirdos, but we didn't know you were that weird. So there is this public outcry against Latter-day Saints. And um, Congress passes what is called the Moral Anti-Bigamy Act, which forbids polygamy in all u s territories it, it is about as targeted a law as you can get against latter day saints uh, so because of this and other factors, by the time you get to eighteen seventy and um, then the percentage of individuals in a plural marriage household is down to about twenty five percent, down from fifty percent in eighteen fifty seven now, one of the um, the reasons members of Congress and other members of the public in america give for passing these anti-polygamy laws is that this holds women in subjugation, which is ironic coming from a group of individuals who won't even let women vote. So um, in response, there's many Latter-day Saints who rally in 1870 under the direction of the Relief Society president, Lizar Snow. It's called a great indignation meeting with, like I said, about five 6,000 women And there, Eliza R. Snow says this. She says, Our enemies pretend that in Utah, woman is held in a state of vassalage, that she does not act by choice, but by coercion. What nonsense! Do you know any place on the face of the earth where woman had more liberty, where she enjoys such high and glorious privileges as she does here as a Latter-day Saint? No! So, Believing that these laws are unconstitutional, many uh, continue to practice and enter into plural marriages practicing civil disobedience, and they decide to float a test case, basically where they ask somebody to get arrested on purpose for practicing plural marriage so that they can get convicted and um, then um, appeal the, 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 the findings, the conviction in a higher court. And so they do this, and it takes a while, and by 1879, the case gets to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they find anti-polygamy laws to be constitutional. However, um, Latter-day Saints continue to enter into plural marriages, continuing to see it uh, as God's will and disobey the law of the land. So those in Congress decide to crank up the heat. In 1882, they passed the Edmonds Act, making polygamy a felony and something punishable by a $500 fine, which is about what you could use to buy a house at the time, and five years in prison. It also made it so that anybody who was a polygamist could not vote or hold office without due process. So this this is significantly more severe. Again, though, people just carry on uh, running from the cops and um, doing what they believe God has willed them to do. So in 1887, they go big. Congress sends it. They create what is called the Edmunds-Tucker Act. This allows for the complete disincorporation of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the seizure of all their assets, including all temples, tithing, and buildings, everything. It is going to completely blow up the church. In July of 1887, the U.S. Attorney General files suit to seize all the church's assets, and it's going down. So, with all of this going down, church leaders going underground, being hunted as fugitives, President Wilford Woodruff um, takes over as leader of the church and seeks for divine guidance on what he should do concerning the practice of plural marriage. Uh, as he prays, he receives revelation that becomes known as the manifesto, as we read it: Doctrine um, Covenants' official declaration number one. In official declaration number one, paragraph four, he just lays it out. He says, Inasmuch as laws have been enacted by Congress forbidding plural marriages, Which laws have been pronounced constitutional by the court of last resort, I hereby declare my intention to submit to those laws, and to use my influence with the members of the church over which I preside to have them do likewise. There is nothing in my teachings to the church or in those of my associates during the time specified which can reasonably be construed to inculcate or encourage polygamy. And when any elder of the church has used language which appeared to convey any such teaching, he has now been promptly reproved. And I now publicly declare that my advice to the Latter-day Saints is to refrain from contracting any marriage forbidden by the law of the land. So uh, basically, the, the tone is, hey, we, we were obedient, but we're being stopped by, by our enemies So we are going to obey so that we can move forward. It's very similar to what you see um, in other places in the the Doctrine and Covenants. Hey, I told you to build a temple in Missouri. You tried to build the temple, but your enemy stopped you. I no longer require it at your hand. Very similar to that tone and that vibe right there. So this uh, is sustained in general conference. But as you can imagine, there's some people that struggle. They've really sacrificed to live this law. And so Wilford Woodruff uh, goes around and he he gives a series of talks to Latter-day Saints, and you can find those in the excerpts section of Official Declaration number one. And basically, he lays it out like this. He says, The Lord has told me to ask the Latter-day Saints a question. And the question is this, Which is the wisest course for the Latter-day Saints to pursue? And he goes on to describe what will happen if they continue to practice plural marriage, losing all their temples, their rights of worship, having all the, the priesthood leaders uh, and key holders arrested. And basically it boils down to this. Which is the wisest course? Option one, we can be forced by the government to stop practicing plural marriage and in the process lose our rights of worship and all our property in the process. Or option two, choose to stop the practice of plural marriage and retain our rights of worship and property and continue. Basically, the question is really simple and really obvious. Shall the work go on or shall it stop? And um, President Woodruff says this basically. He says, I leave this with you for you to contemplate and consider. The Lord is at work with us. Now, it's kind of interesting that the Lord is working with them through this manner. He's like, hey, I know this isn't what you, how you expect Revelation to come necessarily, but the Lord is at work with us in this process and in this whole, whole deal. And so um, they um, cease entering into new plural marriages. Those who are already in a plural marriage situation are kind of grandfathered in. But once they cease the practice of plural marriage... Um, uh, the, the government lays off trying to seize their, their temple the temples and their property, uh, and the saints are able to move forward and continue the work. Now, I want you to notice something kind of interesting here. President Woodruff just said, obey the law of the land, and it's only against the law here in the United States. It's not against the law in Canada, and it's not against the law in Mexico. So we have a fairly decent exodus of Latter-day Saints going up to places like Alberta, or down to Mexico in what is called the Mormon colonies, like Colonia Juarez, other places like that. So um, the, the, there, they continue to enter into new plural marriages until 1904. Here, Joseph F. Smith is now president of the church, and he says, okay, it doesn't matter if you're in Mexico, Canada, or in the middle of Africa, all plural marriages are prohibited." And if any officer or member of the church shall assume to solemnize or enter into any such marriage, he will be excommunicated. Quote. Sure enough, there are some individuals who continue to enter into plural marriages or to solemnize plural marriages. In fact, two apostles continue to do so, and they are excommunicated. From this point on is where you begin to get some of the fundamentalist sects of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, those who practice plural marriage, still, and you can find them smattered all over. But now that the government no longer is threatening to destroy the church, the saints are able to renew their efforts on constructing the Salt Lake Temple, and three years later, the Salt Lake Temple is um, brought into full functionality, bringing the total number of temples up to four. About a year after the dedication of the temple, President Woodruff announced that he had received a revelation. Now, before this revelation, church members, acting according to the knowledge they possessed, often had themselves sealed or adopted to church leaders. That's the way sealings were working. They're like, well, I know Joseph Smith's going to make it, so I'm going to have myself sealed to him. But President Woodruff learned by revelation that he should direct the saints to, quote, trace their genealogies as far as they can and to be sealed to their fathers and their mothers and have their children sealed to their parents and run this chain through as far as you you can get. This is the will of the Lord to his people, end quote. So this is where we get the expansion of temple work and personal family history and all the good things that come from this, linking everybody back into the family of God. All right. So that's the end of official declaration number one. So a couple of ideas from this. Number one, we no longer practice plural marriage. Therefore, young women, if somebody comes up to you and asks you to be their third wife, just say no for a variety of reasons. But number one, because we don't believe in that at this point in the church. Number two, I want you to think about this a little bit. I'm not going to give you any answers, but consider this. Are there any meta-messages about revelation that we can get from official declaration number one? What does it teach us about how God operates? And um, what does it teach us about the process of revelation and moving forward? And ultimately, I would just want to reiterate that point. If you stop, you're stuck. And so we always need to to pay most attention to what the current president of the church is saying, teaching, and leading us. All right. We good? I mean, to assume so, because I can't hear your voice back. All right. Uh, and hey, may I point out my wonky heater has not come on and we are in good shape here. Dude, blessed day in the garage band of po- um, Come Follow Me podcasts right here. All right. Okay, let's go official declaration number two. As you know, official declaration number two ends the ban on giving the priesthood to those of African descent. So we're going to take a look at how does this ban come to be in place in the first place? Um, why does it exist? How long does it exist? And why does it end? Now to set this up, let's look, take a look at the church's current official position on race. This comes from the churchofjesuschrist.org and their essay, Race and the Priesthood. It says, quote, The church disavows the theories advanced in the past that black skin is a sign of divine disfavor or curse or that it reflects unrighteous actions in a premortal life. That mixed-race marriages are a sin, or that blacks or people of any other race or ethnicity are inferior in any way to anyone else. Church leaders today unequivocally condemn all racism, past and present, in any form, end quote. Let's just be clear on something real quick. Um, Race as we see it is simply a, a... a result of evolutionary pressures reacting to a certain climate. To dislike somebody because they have adapted well to a certain climate is insane to me. Dude, let's be real. There are plenty of reasons not to like somebody. Case one, you drive slow in the fast lane. Yes, yes. That, oh yes. Throw tomatoes. But to dislike some, <laughs> honestly, but to dislike somebody because they have adapted well to a certain climate, that's nonsense. And early on in the history of the church, church members created a really racially inclusive vision. It stems from what they learn in the Book of Mormon, Second Nephi twenty-six thirty-three. Jesus Christ invites all men to come unto him and partake of his goodness, and he denieth none to come unto him, black and white bond, meaning slave and free, male and female, all are alike unto God. In fact, Joseph Smith receives at least four revelations instructing him that the gospel must be preached to every creature on the earth, every person on the earth. So this leads um, church leaders to say things like this, W.W. Phelps, we have no special rule in the church as to people of color. Or again, W.W. Phelps, all the families of the earth should get redemption in Christ Jesus. All people are one in Jesus Christ, whether they are from Africa, Asia, or Europe, end quote. And then Joseph Smith says stuff like, We may soon expect to see flocking to this place, Nauvoo, people from every land, from every nation, persons of all languages, and every tongue and every color. Who shall with us worship the Lord of hosts in his holy temple? It seems clear from this that the Joseph expects people of all racial origins to worship in the Melchizedek priesthood temple of Nauvoo. Now, that being said, there are not a lot of black members of the church early on, not necessarily due to racism, more just because they're preaching the gospel in rural New York, and there's just not a lot of black people there. But you do get some pretty significant and faithful individuals, people like Elijah Abel. Elijah Abel joins the church in the 1830s and receives the priesthood in 1836, He participates in all the ordinances of the Kirtland Temple and receives the endowment of power in the Kirtland Temple. Then he goes out and he preaches the gospel principally to white congregations and is very successful. Uh, He's a stud of a missionary. At one point, he's preaching in eastern Canada, and he has a troubling dream where he sees a young woman, uh, a woman, excuse me, named Eunice, uh, who he had baptized in New York, full of doubts about the Book of Mormon. And so, being the powerful missionary he is, he sets out immediately for New York, and then shortly thereafter um, arrives at Eunice's doorstep. She's ready to tell him that the Book of Mormon's a work of fiction and that Joseph Smith was a false prophet, but when she sees him, her heart softened and she invites him in, and he empathizes with her, and he says, "'Sister, you have not been tempted as long as the Savior was after he was baptized.'" Uh, and and just lets her know that this sort of temptation is normal as we go through our process of discipleship. Um, And then he uh, lets her know that he's going to preach at a schoolhouse nearby and come by. So they go and they listen to him preach uh, as he, he teaches from the New Testament where it says, beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. As she hears his voice, uh, she feels the spiritual confirmation that Joseph Smith is a true prophet of God and that the Book of Mormon is true. Now, he's got to go take care of some things as a missionary, but he tells her, I'm going to come back in two weeks. But after he leaves, some people start to spread flyers and handbills in the town, falsely claiming that Elijah had murdered a woman and her, her five children. Dude, it's like, that's just insane. It's insane. It's insane. And so people start taunting Eunice, uh, saying, oh, like, what do you think about your Mormon elder now? And, and she just testifies that God will protect him. So he comes back in two weeks, ready to preach another sermon. And as everybody's gathered, kind of ready to see this guy get beat or lynched, um, and he stands up, unafraid and bold, powerful man. He says, my friends, I am advertised for murdering a woman and five children, And a great reward is offered for my person. Now, here I am. (laughs) Nobody stirs. He's like, if anyone has anything to do with me, now is your time. But after I commence my services, don't you dare lay your hands on me. It's like a Benedite, touch me not or God will smite you. Nobody moves. It's just this tense moment. He's like, nobody? All right. then he sings a hymn, says a prayer and delivers a powerful sermon. Afterwards, he's like, Eunice, you got to get out of this place. The people here are crazy. So we do have some um, fine members of the church uh, who are of African descent who are powerful. Uh, people like, also like Jane Manning. Jane Manning joins the church in Connecticut and helps her family join the church. Following um, her baptism, as she decides to um, gather with the saints in Nauvoo with her family. As they travel to Nauvoo with their branch, and they experience some racism typical of the time, and they refuse to let the Mannings continue their travel on the boat. They're kicked out, and they have to walk. This is going to be an incredible distance. And so they begin to travel, and after several weeks, finally arrive in Nauvoo. Um, Once they arrive in Nauvoo, they knock on Joseph's door, and Emma invites them in. Later, uh, well, i finding places for all of them to sleep, not t- atypical of the, the, the saints in Nauvoo and particularly the Smiths. When Joseph comes home, he turns to Jane Manning and he says, I-, I hear you've been the head of this little band, haven't you? He's like, I would like to hear you relate your experiences and your travels. So she tells him about their long journey. She says, we walked until our shoes were worn out and our feet became sore and cracked open and bled. We asked God, the eternal father, to heal our feet and our prayers were answered and our feet were healed. She talks about how they slept under the stars, how people threatened to throw them in jail because they did not have free papers, how they had to cross rivers and streams and endure frosty mornings and how their children got sick, but they prayed and they were healed by their faith. And she says, we went on our way, rejoicing, singing hymns and thanking God for his infinite goodness and mercy to us. And Joseph replies, God bless you. You're among friends now. After about a week, um, and Joseph comes down and finds Jane crying in his house. And he's like, what's going on? And she says, all her family has gone off and got themselves homes and employment, but she doesn't have one. And he says, you have a home right here if you want it. And then he, he turns to Emma and he says, she has no home. Have not you got a home for her? And Emola replies, yes, if she wants one, she can live here. So Jane quickly becomes part of the Smith household and, and um, works in the store and and is integrated there. So the fact that we have um, people like Jane Manning integrated into the Smith household, we, we have guys like Elijah Abel preaching to white congregations, this seems normal to us today but is definitely unusual in the time period, revolutionary, in fact. And I want just to give you a feel for how different it is. There's a quote by L.P. Hartley that I think is, is important here. He says, The past is a foreign country. They do things differently there, end quote. Like, just to give you a feel for what is more typical of the time, Like George Washington owns his first slave at age 11, Thomas Jefferson pens the line, all men are created equal and sees no contradiction in owning hundreds of slaves. In 1790, the U.S. Congress limits uh, limits citizenship of the United States to free white men. In 1857, we're talking two decades after um, Nauvoo and Joseph Smith uh, right here. Two decades later 20 years later basically the US Supreme Court declares that black individuals possess no rights which a white man is bound to respect. And similar time period 1858, Abraham Lincoln the great emancipator himself listen to what he says. Abraham Lincoln, so this will give you a feel for how unusual the practice of the saints is right here Abraham Lincoln, a quote, I am not nor ever have been in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of white and black races, that I am not nor ever have been in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes nor of qualifying them to hold office nor to intermarry with white people. I, as much as any man, am in favor of the superior position assigned to the white race, end quote. So, when outsiders see how the Latter-day Saints are are acting racially, they level some criticisms against them. Now, let me read off some of these criticisms to you. They're not going to sound like criticisms to you, but trust me, these are criticisms. They say things like, church members accept all nations and colors. And they, they say, elders maintain communion with Indians and walk out with colored women. The church members welcome all classes and characters into their society. The members included aliens by birth. That's not referring to Martians, rather to people born outside of the country. And people from different parts of the world as members of God's earthly family. And two, again, again, I, like. I know this sounds like a compliment. At the time period, it's a criticism. A um, more, three more here. Church members honor the natural equality of mankind without accepting the native Indians or African race. The church members open an asylum for rogues and vagabonds and free blacks, and they promote black ascendancy over whites. In fact, one uh, observer from England, a lawyer traveling through the, Amer- uh, the United States, seeing the, the, the Church of Jesus Christ racial position in Missouri, he, he says, it's unlikely that the saints are going to remain unmolested in the state of Missouri, end quote. And he proves to be rather prophetic on that point. Even if you look at the political cartoons against the Latter-day Saints at the time, on the surface, they'll be like mocking the idea of polygamy. But as you look closely, you'll see that there is also a mockery of their, their racial stance in the, the political cartoons at the time. So if this is the case, if early on the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is radically racially inclusive, when did it change and why does it change? Well, it starts in 1847 after Joseph Smith's death. As they're traveling across the plains and camped in winter quarters, uh, a black man named William McCarry joins the saints in winter quarters. And he, he starts to say things that are kind of wonky, like he's the reincarnation of past prophets and that the saints should follow him. And he has some ventriloquist skills that make it sound like Voices are coming to confirm his claim that he is the reincarnation of past prophets. Now, no surprise here. William McCary is going to be excommunicated for apostasy and expelled from winter quarters. But before his excommunication, William McCary approaches Brigham Young and complains that this is about racial discrimination, um, not about the leaders questioning his strange teachings. Brigham Young's reply is telling. Brigham Young says, quote, it's nothing to do with the blood. For from one blood, God has made all flesh. We have one of the best elders, an African. He's talking about Walker Lewis, who lives back east. And he later adds, We don't care about the color, end quote. Um, that's a pretty clear statement from, from Brigham Young. He's like, we don't care about color. dude." In fact, one of the best elders in the church is a black man. Uh, this, is, this is pretty significant. After William McCary's excommunication, he settles a short distance away from winter quarters and begins to attract individuals to his own brand of um, Mormonism, if you will. I know that's the improper term, but I don't know how to summarize it better there. And he even begins to institute plural marriages among his followers and has himself sealed to several white wives. Now, ah, for whatever reason, interracial marriage in uh, America from early time period has been taboo. And even though the the church members are really rather racially inclusive, particularly for the time, this seems to ruffle some members' sensitivities. Now, after this happens, um, church leaders begin to warn saints not to follow William McCary, not out of any racial tension, but because he no longer holds the priesthood and he preaches some pretty wonky stuff. But as they warn the saints, they begin to draw on teachings of other Christian churches that have not been a part of our church up to this point. Parley P. Pratt in one such lecture says, This black man who has got the blood of ham in him, referring to the son of Noah uh, who was cursed, he says, Who has the blood of ham in him, which lineage was cursed as regard to the priesthood, end quote. This is a significant moment here. Again, this sort of language has not been used in the church. This seems to be a pretty big turning point. Later on in 1847, Brigham Young learns that one of the black elders in the church on the east coast had married a white woman, and this again seems to disturb his sensibilities. Adding to this, there seems to be a growing political pressure for the the saints to get some power. See, in 1847, the Latter-day Saints leave the United States and enter Mexico. But they are not long for Mexico. The next year in 1848, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo is um, ratified. And um, what where the Saints now live is no longer Mexico, but is now again part of the United States. Now at this time, in um, 1848, 1850s America... The the balance of power in the United States Senate between slave states and free states is really, really important. And um, people don't like the Latter-day Saints to begin with. You're going to get presidents like James Buchanan sending an army against the Latter-day Saints. And so it seems like they are really keen to become a territory and then later to become a state and to get power. And by 1850, when all these territorial debates are going on, there's not a lot of black people living in Utah. There are about 100 black individuals living in Utah, the majority of which are actually slaves who come with southern converts and immigrate to Utah. Then um, Brigham Young finds out that New Mexico is campaigning to enter in as a free territory. And some think that Brigham Young may have felt it would be easier to enter the Union as a slave territory to balance uh, Congress uh, because they were struggling to get in there to begin with. So in a territorial legislature debate on slavery in 1852, Brigham Young begins to advocate for Utah to enter in as a slave territory. Um, this is a, a really big about face from his comments where he says, we don't care about color. One of the best elders of the church is Walker Lewis, that sort of idea. And so in this territorial debate, he begins to advocate for slavery in Utah. Now I'm going to tell you upfront, it's cringy. I don't like reading it, but this is kind of the basis for the transition here. He says, quote, I will remark with regard to slavery. Inasmuch as we believe in the Bible, inasmuch as we believe in the ordinances of God, in the priesthood and order and decrees of God, we must believe in slavery. I'm a firm believer in slavery. I would like masters to behave well to their servants and to see that every person in this territory is well used. When a master has a Negro and uses him well, he is much better off than if he was free. Oh, as for good, wholesome servitude, I know there is nothing better than that. And then, this is huge, this is so big. In connection with his statements on slavery, Brigham Young made this comment on the priesthood. He says, Now then, in the kingdom of God on earth, a man who has the African blood in him cannot hold one jot nor tittle of the priesthood. Okay, that's a bold statement here. But it's not presented as revelation. Remember, it's presented in a territorial legislature debate on whether or not they should be a slave territory or free territory. Not presented as revelation, not presented at conference, not sustained by the body of the church. In fact, it's not even sustained by, uh, by other members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. After Brigham Young gets done speaking, Orson Pratt stands up and responds to Brigham Young. And he moves that the slave code, the servant code, be rejected in its entirety. He's like this idea of divine curses from God. He says curses are particular to a given time and a given place to a given person. He says curses are absolutely not multi-generational. He says, quote, shall we take the innocent African that has committed no sin and damn him to slavery and bondage without receiving any authority from heaven to do so? The whole idea is preposterous. It's enough to cause the angels in heaven to blush. But um, Brigham's um, viewpoint carries the day and on February 4th, 1852, um, Utah passes an act that legalizes slavery in Utah and Utah becomes a slave territory. However, when the Civil War breaks out in 1861, Utah does not side with the South and other slave states. They side with the North when they do so, many Southern converts who are slave owners return to the South, and there does not left very many black individuals in Utah um following following these legislative arguments uh Joseph's excuse me, Brigham Young's comments are recorded in kind of an obscure form of shorthand and more or less lost to the world and only recently rediscovered and translated here. But people hear about his comments, and so it kind of word of mouth becomes the practice in the church not to ordain men of African descent to the priesthood or allow any person of African descent to participate in Melchizedek priesthood ordinances in the temple, even though Men had been ordained to the priesthood prior to this, but it's kind of like a, a, a game of telephone, word of mouth, and it becomes a widespread practice in not too long. Once the practice is widespread, it becomes a policy in the church. And once it's a policy, then people start remembering back and making claims that weren't actually true about how this practice starts, and it becomes rather ingrained in our culture. And even though it is a policy, it is not taught as something internal. Like Wilford Woodruff says, the day will come when those of African descent will be redeemed and possess all the blessings. But part of the problem is, even though it's seen as a policy, it's so ingrained that church leaders feel that they need to get a revelation in order to stop the practice, since it's so widespread and since the origins are so unclear. Heber J. Grant says the ban will continue until such a time as the Lord shall see fit to withdraw the decree. Again, feeling like there is a need for um, a, a divine revelation to change course on this. President McKay talks about praying about this frequently. He says, there's no doctrine relating to this priesthood ban. He describes it as a scriptural precedent uh, or a practice, but not a doctrine. And David O. McKay says, quote, the practice someday will be changed and that's all there is to it, end quote. Spencer W. Kimball thinks about this for decades, Having grown up in Arizona around different races, particularly Latino populations and uh, Navajo uh, populations, this, is, this idea of races is particularly on his mind. And as early as 1963, he writes a letter to his son and he says, I wish the Lord had given us more clarity in the matter. Because like we said, the beginnings of this are so muddy and word of mouth. He's like, I just don't see the clarity on this. He goes on in this letter to his son and he says, I know the Lord could change his policy and release the ban. And then he says something interesting. He says, and forgive the possible error, which brought about the deprivation. If the time comes that he will do, I am sure. But like we said, once it starts as a practice and becomes a policy, and since the origins are not clear, presidents of the church believe they need a clear revelation to change the pro- policy. And a lot of people have attempted explanations to explain why this priesthood ban came about in the first place. People say things like, Brigham Young was a racist and he was acting on his own racism. Now, it is certainly true that Brigham Young is a, a product of his time. You heard Abraham Lincoln in his views, and not many people are calling him racist. Um, Brigham Young certainly said racist things. But at the same time, he also says things like, we don't care about the color, and one of the best elders of the church is a black man. So, this is not as easy black and white as some people t- sometimes want to make it out. This is way more muddy in real life than sometimes we appreciate. Other people claim that Brigham Young was acting on what he believed was required by scripture, but was wrong about his scripture interpretation. Others say Brigham Young straight up received a revelation and that's why the ban existed. Or they say Brigham Young enacted the policy because the people, the Latter-day Saints, were racist and they weren't ready for full racial equality. Others believe that that it, it was completely political as we talked about the, the debate about entering into the territory as a slave territory to balance with New Mexico, um, that it was politically motivated. Others even say that it's missionary motivated, that this ban would attract more converts from the South and grow the church. And, and some even give doctrinal um, justifications for the practice. In response to this, Jeffrey R. Holland says this, All I can say is however well-intended the explanations were, I think almost all of them were inadequate and are wrong. To the extent that I know anything about it, we simply do not know why that practice, that policy was in place. We just don't know in the historical context of the time why it was practiced. That is my principal concern, is that we don't perpetuate explanations about things we don't know. I think that's a wise ground to go on. So we know that it uh, came about and we know some of the details, but uh, as far as motivations and, and extension, we just don't know. And we've got to be honest with ourselves and say, anything I say at this point is going to be an assumption on my part. Elder Dallinic Schotz talking about this says, some people put reasons to the priesthood ban and they turned out to be spectacularly wrong. There is a lesson to that. So, when does the policy change? Throughout the 1950s, David O. McKay um, begins softening several restrictions on this, but does not believe he has received clarity and revelation to completely remove the ban. When Spencer W. Kimball takes over, he ponders this a lot. This is on his mind all the time. He's asking people about it as he interviews them for physics job positions up at BYU. He's asking random people about it in interviews. And they're like, I don't know, you're the leader of the church. And he sees two really big problems here. Number one, he's like, God; he is very missionary minded, as you know, right? And he sees God's command to take the gospel to the entire earth. And he's like, how do I fulfill God's command to take the gospel to all of his children when we are excluding a major portion of his children? I don't see how that makes sense. And number two, we're completing the construction of the temple in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And whereas there's always been a taboo against interracial marriages in America, that same taboo against intermarriage In Brazil has not existed. And for centuries, um, we have those of uh, Indian descent marrying those of African descent, of those of European descent. And we end up with a a group of people in Brazil who are brown, um, but it's really hard to, to say who is of African descent and who is not of African descent. And so these sorts of questions are weighing heavily on his mind. So, so he said, he, he's like, I went to the temple a lot alone, especially on Sunday and Saturday when there are not organizations in the temple. And he searches about it. He prays about it. And finally, um, feels like he's moving in the, the right direction. And so on June 1st, 1978, he meets with the Quorum of the Twelve. And afterwards, they offer a prayer asking God what they should do on the priesthood ban. President Kimball says, if you want this band to continue, I will support it and fight the world for the rest of my life. But if you would desire it to change, please let us know. President Hinckley, who is there, he says, as President Kimball knelt and pleaded before God, the spirit of God was there. And by the power of the Holy Ghost, there came to that prophet an assurance that the thing for which he prayed was right and the time had come and that now the wondrous blessings of the priesthood should be extended to every worthy man everywhere, regardless of lineage. And so they make the announcement and it becomes official declaration number two. Man, what do we do with this? This one's messy, man. This is just about a, as messy as it gets. And so I'm going to ask you the same question. What do we learn about God and the way he interacts with his children from this official declaration? That's, it. That's something to, uh, I need you to spend some time on and pondering. Now, at one point, President Kimball calls this ban a possible error. What do we do about that? Is it possible to have leaders of the church make errors and still have priesthood keys and access to the saving power of Jesus Christ? Dude, I believe it is. I believe that's the only way there is any functioning church. Like, you guys have served in leadership positions. <laughs> now, you have felt an, uh, a special mantle at times or an increased um, power from God to assist you in doing his work. But when you were set apart to be a quorum president or a bishop or some other leader, was it like you instantly were transformed and no longer made any errors? Dude, that's nonsense. That's nonsense. I really like how Adam Miller puts it. Adam Miller says, while it is scary to think that God works through weak, limited, and partial mortals like us, the only thing scarier would be thinking that he doesn't. This rule applies to our own church history. It's a false dilemma to claim that either God works through practically flawless people or God doesn't work at all. The gospel isn't a celebration of God's power to work with flawless people. The gospel is a celebration of God's willingness to work today in our world, in our lives, with people who clearly aren't flawless. To demand that church leaders past and present show us only a mask of angelic pseudo-perfection is to deny the gospel's most basic claim— That God's grace works through our weakness. We need prophets, not idols. Our prophets and leaders won't turn out to be who you want them to be. They are not, in fact, even what God might want them to be. But they are real. And God really can nonetheless work through their imperfections to extend his perfect love. I think that's well said. The basic claim of the gospel is not that God works with flawless people, but that He works uh, with flawed people. And thank goodness for that, for that should give us hope that God could work with for with us. The church is just a bunch of imperfect people working toward God, and, and our Father puts great value on agency and development and patience. Um, He is willing to let us struggle in this mortal life. Like This is a key aspect uh, of his gospel as it is preached to us. Therefore, as we ground our testimonies and witnesses, wrestle with this, by all means wrestle, Uh, honor the struggle here. But ground your witness, ground your faith, ground your testimony on the living Son of the living God that Jesus Christ himself came down and suffered for us all and he can redeem us all ground it in the fact that we can make covenants with this living son of god through the priesthood keys available to us in the temple and that that joseph smith did restore these truths and these keys do exist now this does not mean that everybody operating in these and using these keys is perfect but ground your keys you ground your testimony in jesus and our loving father in heaven and at the same time heed President Nelson's counsel. If we've been talking about how you, st- if you stop, you're stuck, this is certainly true for us. President Nelson said, calls on us to abandon attitudes of prejudice against any of God's children. Um, if we have prejudice against toward any other race, we need to repent and change. Our gospel understanding of true brotherhood of men and the true sisterhood of women inspires us with passionate desire to build bridges of cooperation instead of walls of segregation. So we follow the the counsel of our, our current leader, and we reach out in love, and we ground our testimony in Jesus. I witness to you of the reality of a father in heaven. And I witness to you that he has your back. Go to him.